welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that human beings are tribal animals and that we thrive when we live in community because we are collaborative and cooperative for the most part. We also must remain aware that a very small percentage of us are predators who are dangerous, and we must be aware of them and do things that we need to do in order to sustain ourselves in their presence. Otherwise, they would take over and become dictators. So today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I'm pleased to be interviewing Sherry Race, who is a pioneer in bringing psychedelic medicine into the sphere of insurance. And we're going to hear about that. And we're going to hear other things as well. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Sherry. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Sherry, let's go back a little bit for some background. What brought you into this field of psychedelic medicine? How did you get involved? So that's an interesting story. I started my career in poverty reduction. So I spent 10 years consulting to the UN and the World Bank. And I was really focused then as I am now on how to reduce human suffering. Uh, Back then I was doing it, as I said, through poverty reduction. And I worked on programs at the national level in over 30 countries. Um, designing and implementing programs with the goal of reducing poverty. What I saw from all of that work was that you can't fully address poverty without addressing mental health. And I saw this because in our outcome reports and impact assessments, we saw that through the initiatives we were implementing, sure, some people would come out of poverty, and that was great, but I was always paying attention to the people who weren't. And when we controlled for other factors like access to basic healthcare, access to basic education, infrastructure, it seemed very apparent that mental health was the missing piece. That then led me down a road of, okay, well, how do we solve for mental health? Like, what are the things that we have that we can start building programs around in these resource-constrained environments? As an example, I was working in countries like Afghanistan, Yemen, South Africa, Nigeria, And so I went down this rabbit hole of looking for mental health solutions and was shocked to see that most of the ways we are treating mental health, even in the West, I was surprised that nothing we have uh, is really effective. And I was a little disillusioned, but I kept looking and stumbled upon what was happening in the psychedelic space and was really blown away, Richard. And I, I won't talk too much more on this, but essentially I saw that In the clinical trials with psychedelics, psychedelic-assisted therapy, anywhere from 60 to 80% of people were getting into full remission from their indication, which is one to four sessions of psychedelic therapy. And that's unheard of with anything else we have to treat mental health. So that ultimately led me to leave uh, a career I had spent 10 years building and uh, find a way to get people access. And... Were there certain psychedelics that you were investigating that were showing you these 
high rates of success? I was initially blown away with the results from psilocybin, MDMA, LSD, and ketamine-assisted therapy. Mm-hmm. And you mostly were interested in the studies that were going on in the United States or because, exactly. or because of your wide uh, travels? Were there other countries that were doing psychedelic research that caught your interest as well? Yeah, initially I was interested in the studies happening in the U.S. I also, of course, saw some interesting studies coming out of the U.K., Australia, and Canada. But initially it was was studies coming from the United States that caught my interest. And then I was particularly interested because of the work I was doing in resource-constrained environments in the treatment of treatment-resistant depression and PTSD because this is what I had seen firsthand in the countries I was working in. So the work that's been done by MAPS and MDMA and Roland Griffith's work at John Hopkins caught your interest, uh, Roland's work with depression? Definitely. And it's interesting timing to mention Roland because he passed away this week, yeah. but he was monumental uh, in the work that's been done for psychedelic research. Yes, yes. Roland appears in my first book back in 2017, Psychedelic Medicine. I was very proud to interview him. So you saw the benefits of psychedelic medicines. Did any of the adverse effects of psychedelic medicines also come to your attention? And I'm going to tell you the reason I'm asking that question. Yes. In the United States, Big Pharma has been, if you hiding if not sanitizing their adverse effects for many years, decades. And one of the ways they do this is by referring to their adverse effects as, quote, side effects, close quote, as if if they happen on the side and they're trivial because side effects sounds, you know, very trivial. Yes. But the effects of any medicine that are what I call unwanted complications of medicine. That's what I call side effects. They're unwanted complications of medicine. The effects of these unwanted complications, they don't happen just on the side, like on the flank, on the side. They happen to the entire system. So as soon as I heard that, I knew they were hiding something. As a researcher and scientist involved with psychedelic medicine, I think it's our responsibility to do just the opposite, to be totally transparent about everything we know about these medicines so that the consumers and the doctors and the guides who supply these medicines know exactly what they're getting into. So with that background, What did you run into with regard to unwanted complications in addition to these very powerful remissions and positive effects? Yes. Excellent question, Richard. And I couldn't agree with you more that we cannot gloss over side effects or mask them as side effects. We do need to address them as they are and address adverse effects and educate people so we know how to mitigate risks. Before I share what I ran into in terms of adverse effects, I'll tell you a little bit more about 
the journey that I was just speaking about. So I stumbled upon what was happening in the psychedelic space. I was blown away by the results to the point where I ultimately actually quit my job that I had spent 10 years, you know, building and was very fulfilled by. And I pivoted and I decided I want to now spend my time and apply my skills and talents towards building the infrastructure for the psychedelic ecosystem. In order to get me to that point where I was able to make this decision of I'm going to, you know, take this huge risk and quit my job and start something with, you know, no real guarantees, I had to do my own homework and my own due diligence. So as a part of that, I read for hours and hours on end. I also took the certificate program at the California Institute for Integral Studies. It's um, one of the few accredited universities that offers training on psychedelic therapy and research. That program is an extremely intense year filled with readings. I highly recommend the program, by the way. Um, but in that, in all of those readings, that's when I started encountering some of these adverse effects. And I will say one more thing before say, talking more about what the adverse effects are, that I was surprised that these substances like MDMA, psilocybin are scheduled substances given how few adverse effects they have in comparison to some of our less scheduled and more widely available substances. Um, but with that in mind, ketamine specifically um, can have some adverse effects that include nausea and vomiting, um, elevated blood pressure and heart rate. So it's important um, to screen for people that have high blood pressure or heart rate issues. It can cause psychological discomfort. Ketamine has um, some more risks with dependency and abuse in a non-therapeutic or non-clinical setting. That's not so much the case with MDMA and psilocybin. But with psilocybin and MDMA, some other adverse effects can include uh, hallucinations and paranoia, some flashbacks to the psychedelic experience, like after the therapy session, which can be distressing when unexpected. And then again, some, some more physical symptoms like nausea, vomiting, and changes in blood pressure and heart rate during the medicine session itself. So there are these adverse effects that we need to be mindful of. Do you think at this stage in the development of psychedelic medicines, we are able to list the various adverse effects, the various unwanted complications, and state definitively what percent of the people taking these medicines will get each of these different effects, such as what percent will get nauseated, what percent will get high blood pressure or increase in blood pressure, what percent will get increased heart rate, what percent, et cetera, et cetera. The same way that when you buy prescription medicine, if you read the little tiny piece of paper that's in very small print that comes with the medicine, they very often will list all the different effects, the negative effects, and then they'll tell you what percentage of the population will get those. So obviously, if you read that the medicine you're taking might have a very negative effect on 26% of the people taking it, you're going to have a very different reaction 
than if you read the 2% of the population get a net, that kind of reaction. And so I think that kind of information is important. And I'm wondering if you know that where we are with regard to having that kind of information available, or is more research needed in order to obtain that information? So I am not a clinician or a doctor or a researcher. Let me start with that disclosure. Uh, I am a founder and entrepreneur and passionate about this space, but definitely not a clinician. And yet what I will say is, I think we do have, I'm sure there's. it's always great to do more research and we should continue to do research, but I do think we have a lot of studies. And if you look at the phase three clinical trials, the results from that, that MAPS has released and other organizations have released their clinical trials as well, that we do have pretty detailed reporting on adverse effects. And in fact, um, not to not to brush over or minimize the adverse effects of psychedelics. But again, what we've seen in clinical trials that are done quite rigorously, especially when they're for FDA approval, um, there's a lot of protocols in place to make sure the studies are done properly. We are seeing that most of these adverse effects are minimal, if not, not existent when done in a clinical setting. So there are a much higher risk of adverse effects like having a bad trip, people call it, or paranoia or hallucinations that are unwanted. These kinds of things happen a lot more often in an uncontrolled recreational setting. But when we do psychedelic-assisted therapy with that is supervised with trained therapists, we are not seeing these adverse effects happen as often, and I do think that um, these are this is documented in the clinical trials quite well. How do you see prospective patients gaining access to the medicines and to treatment? What do you see coming down the pike on that? Yeah, so I'm hopeful that large insurance carriers, as these, as these medicines become FDA-approved uh, and rescheduled, that large insurance carriers will uh, develop policies and protocols and plans to cover these treatments so that people have access to them. Ketamine right now is available and FDA-approved all over the country, and large insurance carriers are not covering uh, ketamine-assisted therapy. It is sometimes getting reimbursed on a case-by-case -case basis, but there isn't you know, broad coverage for ketamine-assisted therapy, which is sort of why I helped create Enthia. Um, so we're a benefit plan administrator of health plans for employers to cover psychedelic therapy, starting with ketamine therapy. And I'm hoping that we can reach millions of people through Enthia, but Ultimately, the goal would be broader access through large insurance plans. Now, correct me if I'm mistaken here, but I get the impression that you are the first, you saying, in Thea, the company that, yes. company that you've co-founded, yes. is the first company to actually get reimbursement for psychedelic therapy. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, we are the first and only company that offers benefit plans to reimburse 
psychedelic therapy so people can get covered and access these medicines. But to be a little bit more specific, that is for ketamine-assisted therapy specifically. Okay. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. That is, Thank a, you that so is huge. That's a major step. You have Thank a you. lot to be proud of. Now, Thank you so much. Please tell us a little about Anthea and tell us about how you were able to get insurance coverage for this first uh, a psychedelic medicine to be covered by insurance. Yeah. So um, Anthea is a third-party administrator of health plan benefits. So we work with employers who want to offer these treatments to their employees. There are a lot of reasons why employers might be interested in doing that. The obvious uh, one being that they care about their employees' well-being um, and they want a healthy workforce. But the other reasons why an employer might choose to offer this include um, an increased amount of productivity, reduced medical spend, increased amount of presenteeism or reduced absenteeism, better retention rates. And this is also a great way to attract new talent through benefits and perks. Um, so there's a lot of reasons employers might want to offer this. And there's a lot of data to show uh, what the costs of having Un, unwell or unhealthy workforce is to the employer. For example, a depressed employee on average costs their employer $35,000 a year. Um, so treating the depression and curing the depression is really of utmost interest to the employer. Um, and how we do that is we act as an add-on or ancillary benefit plan that can be layered on top of their existing offering. So we're not giving them reimbursement through their insurance per se, this is an add-on plan that they would offer to their employees. Now, I've been interviewing scientists in the psychedelic arena from all the great institutions in the United States. Johns yes. Hopkins, NYU, UCLA, UC San Francisco, etc. And the feedback I'm getting from everywhere yes. is that the psychedelic experience itself mm -hmm. is like going into one's private gold mine and, yes. and coming out with nuggets. Yes. But the therapy that goes on both before the psychedelic session, the introduction therapy, and the follow-up therapy that is sometimes referred to as integration yes is really where the most important work gets done because it's yes. it's in the therapy where the nuggets that we take out of the gold mine get polished up otherwise yeah. otherwise we go into the gold mine where it's like wow oh my gosh you know it's a transcendent experience and then you still have to go to work the next day and you still have to put food on the table and dress yourself and live with other people, et cetera. And that is those differences that we want to create in ourselves take place in polishing the nuggets in the ongoing therapy. So my question that I'm leading up to is to what extent are the insurance companies so far 
willing to pay for the ongoing therapy after the, the psychedelic session? And what do you hope for in the future with regard to yeah. reimbursement? Yes. So that was an excellent analogy and very, very true that um, without the preparation that happens before and the integration that happens after, we don't see these profound results. And people in the audience can, can read some of the clinical trials from MAPS, for example, on MDMA and psilocybin-assisted therapy. And actually in the clinical trials, uh, they do document the difference in outcomes between people who just do therapy, they do therapy plus the psychedelic, and they do just the psychedelic. And there are very large differences with the most significant outcomes being when you do the psychedelic in combination with the therapy, both before and after. Yes. Uh, in answer to your question, um, what am I hoping for in terms of the reimbursement for the therapy? Well, right now we, and this has been true for a while, there's sort of a crisis in how insurance is kind of covering mental health in general. Let's remove the psychedelics from the equation to answer your question. Most behavioral health workers don't accept insurance. And this is why, you know, when you're looking for a therapist in network, whichever large company or health plan you're working with, it's often very difficult. In fact, the average wait time to find a therapist in network with some of the major insurance carriers is three months. And most people can't wait three months. Um, and then there's an issue of the quality of therapists that you're getting in network um, when there's so many other therapists that don't take insurance um, that might be better qualified to, to work with you given your condition and then the access. I won't get into this whole long thing of, you know, the availability of therapists by zip code, but we have a real access problem in the U.S. I hope that uh, changes over time and that um, behavioral health is better covered by existing insurance carriers, for sure. Through Anthea, we are not just covering the ketamine and when MDMA and psilocybin becomes approved, we're not just reimbursing for the drug. We are including in our protocols and standards of care and policies, the entire treatment. So cycle, starting with uh, preparation, then medication, and then integration. So that's all a part of what we cover. But my hope is that, you know, especially now with the effects of COVID, we're really seeing, we're really in a mental health crisis. The amount of people who feel alone, who feel depressed, who feel anxious, who are experiencing trauma has never been this high. And so I'm hoping this will cause a shift and that there will be better coverage and better access for behavioral health through insurance. I've been told by some scientists at Johns Hopkins that between 30 and 40% of the United States are suffering from anxiety and or depression. Does that match with the numbers that you're hearing? Yes, very much so. In fact, there was a Surgeon General warning that um, I think it was 60% of people um, have at least one symptom of a mental, like a diagnosable mental health condition. I could be wrong on the number, but I'm almost positive. That doesn't mean they meet all of the diagnostic criteria, but they have at least one symptom. If you happen to run across that uh, Surgeon General report, I'd appreciate you're sending me yeah. a link. I'd like to read that. 
I will. I do have it bookmarked, so I will share it with you for sure. Thank you. That that sounds uh, very important because what I'm hearing from around the country, Sherry, is that every therapist who is any kind of therapist whatsoever is running a waiting list. It's like an avalanche of people seeking treatment since the pandemic. Yep, it's true. The the increase, for example, of people searching for how to ask for a mental health day in 2022 went up 400%. Now, you're a person who travels the world. <sighs> Are these numbers also occurring in other countries? Are they also experiencing extremely high numbers with regard to anxiety and depression in their populations? Do you know? I'm so glad that you asked that question, Richard, because so few times do people ask me this. Um, you know, I spent a good part of my life and still am very much devoted to, as I mentioned, reducing human suffering and, and helping underserved communities. Uh, within Thea, I've, I've more recently been focused on how to get Thea implemented starting in the U.S., but it's not lost on me. Uh, how grave the situation is in other countries. As an example, in high-income countries like Canada and the U.S., 70% of people with psychosis receive treatment. But if you go to low-income countries, that number plummets to 12%. Uh, as another just example of the disparity for depression, 23% of people in high-income countries are getting adequate care for their depression. Now, that alone is pretty bad. If only 23% of people with depression are getting adequate care, we definitely have a problem. But in low-income countries, that 23% goes down to 3%. So this is, you know, extremely sad. Um, it keeps me up at night quite often um, that, you know, with everything we're dealing with here, it's magnified in developing countries. And if you look at what's going on in the world right now, in Ukraine, in Israel, and Palestine, it's even worse. Like, think about what it would be to lose everything and, and the remnants of trauma that has for generations to come. Listening to you, Sherry, I'm thinking to myself, if we extrapolate as a guess, it would seem like a safe guess would be that a, a, at least... 25% of the world is suffering from anxiety and depression right now. Yeah. Doesn't that seem the, like a like a, a safe, low, the, low estimate guess? Yes. The World um, Health Organization, I think, um, it is in line with that that assessment. 20, 20 to 25% of the people are, are suffering from a mental health condition. Um, but then if you own in as a, just another example, since you, you opened up this can of worms that I'm very passionate about, but like in South Sudan, because of the conflict in South Sudan, 50% of the population has PTSD, 50%. So it's a lot of trauma. It's, there's a lot of trauma in the world, a lot of trauma. Yeah. And we wonder why people are so easily prey to populist leaders who promised them a big daddy who's going to save right? who's going to save them that's Definitely. part of what's going on yeah well 
I want to take a short pause now for you to either close your eyes or do it with your eyes open Mm -hmm. and think, what have we missed? If we were to close this interview right now and then one minute later you were to think to yourself, oh, I sure wish I would have said blah, 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 blah. What is it that you might think of that you wish you would have said because by doing it this way, you get to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. You know, you know how often for- that happens to us all. We go to a, <laughs> we go to a meeting or we're interviewing or we're talking and then we in our car a few minutes later and a thought comes to us and we say, oh, darn it. I wish I would have said that. Right. Well, I like to account for that and give you the opportunity to think of what you would have thought of. <laughs> I have a few things. Thank you for asking. Excellent. One would be uh, going back to the adverse effects because I think that's such an important topic that often gets overlooked because people are so excited about psychedelics as they should be because the results are quite outstanding. I think it's just important to remember that these medicines, while extremely helpful and transformative and, you know, studies show really incredible results of remission. That all withstanding, these medicines are not for everyone. So it's it's important to, you know, talk to uh, an expert, talk to a provider about whether or not even just ketamine therapy makes sense for you rather than being um, completely committed to, oh, I heard this podcast and that's it. I'm trying ketamine therapy tomorrow. That's not what uh, I'm advocating and that's not what I would want. Um, And then even when finding a provider uh, right now that's only possible for ketamine therapy, it's important to to find a place that does uh, proper screening, like thorough screening is important for uh, contraindications, important to educate ourselves. Um, There's so much information, useful information out there on, on YouTube. There's books, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan is a great one, but to really educate ourselves before undergoing something like this and to have a good support system. The idea of um, psychedelic-assisted therapy, like you said, Richard, like you find all of these gold nuggets and then it's only helpful if you have like a therapist after to kind of navigate everything you've just discovered in the gold mine. If you're going to go down this, this path, have someone that you can talk to, maybe in addition to your therapist so you do have a support system about what you're about to go through. That's one thing that I that I didn't get to talk about that I would have talked about, and thank you for giving me that chance. Another thing, if I may, if I'm allowed. Please. Uh, this, if, this, uh, is, this is when you get to say everything that you would have thought of in the car when you were driving, <laughs> when you were driving away. Thank you. The other thing would be that, you know, I know you cover really important topics on your podcast, but there, there may always be the chance that some people listening today, it's their first time listening to your podcast. That's so right. Some of, some of this information could be new for them. Yes. And I think um, in that case, what I'd really like to leave listeners with is just, you know, we threw out a lot of numbers here, about 20% of people suffering from anxiety or depression and in low-income countries, it being even higher. 
but, you know, maybe even 60% having a symptom, you know, these numbers are, they sound like big numbers, but what that means is almost everyone you know is, you know, one out of two people that you know is probably going through something. Or maybe you yourself is going through something. And so I think my ask is to check in with yourself, with the people you love about, with the people you care about. I think so often we don't take a few moments to just check in with the people we love or check in with ourselves because we love ourselves. Um, and yeah, to take take care and show love to the to others, I think is really important. What I've seen as I've been talking about in Thea on podcasts, but also at conferences and on stages is the feedback I get afterwards is, you know, I, I didn't feel comfortable talking about mental health until I heard you share this thing, or I didn't feel comfortable asking about this until you shared the thing. And it's like, I want to break that stigma. We should feel comfortable talking about how we're feeling. Yes. I do have one request. Put me on your tickler file for some, okay. for some time in the future, six months or 12 months, so that when Anthea starts making more progress, you can yes. call me, we'll do an interview, and you'll give us a progress report on what's happening on the interface between psychedelic therapy and insurance. That sounds lovely. I will do that for sure. Thank you. And thank you for being with us today. And thank you, gentle listeners, for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I want to remind you that all our broadcasts are archived and in accord with my philosophy and the philosophy of my producer, Charlie Deist, all our archives are open source. That means free for you to listen to. Just go to mindbodyhealthpolitics.org and you can listen to them at your leisure. Remember, we broadcast a new program every Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock so you can hear a fresh program Tuesdays at 9 or go to the archives. Looking forward to being with you again for our next interview. This is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. <laughs>